0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: The Ukrainian counter-offensive has begun. First came the shaping operations to weaken Russian military power, and now the battles are underway. Yet with some reports saying that the counter-offensive is stalling and a failure, and others saying it's right on track, what is actually the state of the war in Ukraine today? I'm your host James Patton Rogers, this is Warfare, and as you know on this podcast we've covered Russia's offensive war against Ukraine from the very start, placing it into its historical context back to the 1800s, and analysing the latest developments in war from sieges to drones. It's for this reason I wanted to bring our coverage up to date by inviting Dr Mike Martin onto the podcast. Mike is a former officer in the British Army and a senior visiting fellow within war studies at King's College London. He's become a leading voice on the conflict and is the author of a new book, How to Fight a War. Put simply, Mike is the ideal person to take us through the latest developments and to outline what to expect next in the coming weeks in Ukraine. Hi, Mike. Welcome to Warfare. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I expect you to be incredibly busy at this moment in time. A, a counter-offensive has begun in the war in Ukraine, and you have most certainly become the UK's leading expert on this conflict. And what I say is, you know, someone that the public turn to to find answers to what is exactly going on. Is it a busy time right now?
2: There have been one or two media requests but nothing out of the ordinary. Nothing
1: out of the ordinary. Well thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Perhaps you can give us a little bit about your background yourself. Of course you are former military yourself. I know that you're currently running
2: for a member of parliament with the Liberal Democrats as well but what's your military background Mike? So I spent six years in the British army and I was a political officer. So I spoke fluent push to, and my job was to build relationships with this extraordinary cast of characters in Afghanistan and drug warlords, tribal leaders, landowners, the whole lot, and understand what was going on in Afghan society, but also to set up kind of two-way channels of communication. And then since the military, right towards the end of my military, I did my PhD, and, and since then I've been either working in conflict zones, both for governments and also in the private sector, and writing books. And I've been a senior fellow at the War Studies Department in King's. And as you said, yeah, now my latest project is I'm running for Parliament in Tunbridge Wells in Kent.
1: Ah, I know it well. I used to spend a lot of time down there In my youth, a good part of the world. So perhaps bring us down to to the moment that we're in right now. Now on this podcast, listeners will know that we've covered the Ukraine conflict from, well, the 1800s through to today, putting what is happening right now into its historical context. And today's episode, for all intents and purposes, isn't going to be a history episode because it's about finding out exactly what is going on. And it's quite difficult to know what is going on at this moment in time because quite deliberately... Ukraine has been keeping a lot of secrecy and silence around when, where, and how they're going to launch this counteroffensive. So, fill in some of the gaps for us, Mike. When did this counteroffensive begin? I think just
2: before we get into that, we need to timestamp this recording, right? It's four ten on the UK time in the afternoon on the twelfth of June because it's so fast moving that actually we need to kind of so listeners are like, oh, hang on a minute, that was really, you know, I don't know how long the distance is between your recording and getting it out so i think to all intents and purposes it really kicked off kind of mid april and there was a long period maybe about six or seven weeks of what the military call shaping operations and shaping operations are basically to shape the battlefield but also your enemy to your liking and so, in very simplistic terms, it's about knocking out your enemy's command and control, logistics, maybe destroying a railway so that they need to send their supplies down another road that that's useful to you later on. And it's also about shaping the battlefield. So perhaps destroying a road or making it impassable. Or you know, we saw the attack on the Kerch Dam, didn't we, back in October? That was a great example of that. And just in this last week, we've seen Russia tried to shape the battlefield quite dramatically with the blowing up of the Karkovka Dam, which for a brief period made some areas of the battlefield impossible and now actually two weeks on or a week on, but in two weeks' time, things will have dried out and actually it might have returned to much the same. So
1: all of this is about shaping the battlefield and trying to funnel troops into certain areas and stop them from kind of flanking you round the edges, basically.
2: It is that, and it's also about sending signals right because what you're trying to do is deceive your enemy right all warfare is based on deception or all successful warfare is based on deception and there's broadly two types of deception one is where you increase so there's lots of ambiguity in war that's just the nature of it you want to increase the level of ambiguity that your enemy's feeling because that gives them lots of dilemmas do i go over here or over there Do I, you know, retreat or do I reinforce here? Do I reinforce there? So what you're trying to do is, is, and this is what the Ukrainians did very well in the shaping operation: is they put in lots of activity in lots of different places. So it wasn't, it made it less clear to the Russians where it was they were going to have the final push. And actually, as I'm sure we'll come into now, what's happened in the last week, which is a kind of they've moved out of shaping operations, but they've continued that some elements of that deception into the initial phases, if you like, of the non-shaping operation, the actual operation. And then the other type of deception is ambiguity lowering. So this is where you very clearly signal to your enemy that you're going to hit in this particular area, but actually you're trying to do it in another area. So you know D-Day was a classic example. We very clearly signaled to the Germans that the Padekale was going to be the area of the assaults and and it was so successful that even a couple of days into the normandy operation the germans were still sending reinforcements to the calais area so that's you know and that's exactly what the ukrainians are doing this week which we can talk about in a minute so you're kind of doing a whole bunch of things in your shaping operations and we saw obviously a lot of stuff in the information space as well so we saw all those videos didn't we of ukrainian training or the equipment they'd been given from the west and all that kind of stuff and and that is actually that was largely aimed at us in the west as a kind of don't worry guys we thank you all for all your support but it sort of trickles down into the russian sphere as well because they you know the more anxiety you can create in your opponents you know if they spend the six weeks of the shaping operations worrying about where they're going to be attacked then when the operation does kick off at least the initial phases of it as have kicked off in the last week, then you've already used up six weeks of nervous energy. So you're less able to think clearly, respond aggressively, all that kind of stuff. So I think all of that really is the the psychological effect that you're trying to create in your shaping operations.
1: So, to try and illustrate a little bit what you're talking about here, are we saying, for example, when there were the incidences of blowing up of Russian train lines across the Russian border, that was a way to try and shape the operation by stopping resources coming through to Russian forces in the Russian front line? And then there was the so called anti Kremlin russian nationals who then started to cross over to the russian border
2: and the freedom legion freedom
1: legion yeah exactly so that took up headlines for a while and
2: took up russian resources well that was brilliant right i mean that was brilliant because before that the russian ukrainian front line within ukraine was about 1200 kilometers the distance from where the russian ukrainian front line hits the russian border And the Belarusian-Russian-Ukrainian tri-border is about 1,200 kilometers. And previously, I think the Russians had felt, well, if you just look at how much they defended that border, i.e. not at all, deduction from that is that they actually weren't, they felt safe. They felt safe there. And by putting a relatively small military force, like a battalion or something, less than a battalion, of troops with initiative It meant that the Russians suddenly had to double the area of border that they were worrying about. And it soaks up mental energy. One of the scarcest resources in warfare is the commander's mental energy. And it also, as you were saying, drew resources away from Bakhmut or wherever else the Russians were trying to defend. So I thought that was very unexpected and, and quite brilliant.
1: It reminds me of kind of special operations forces operations during the Second World War, before the invasion of France. You mentioned D-Day, of course, but you had special operations forces in there doing these shaping operations, blowing up train lines, cutting off communications points, applying pressure on the Germans. So you do have these parallels in history that we can talk about. But one of the ones that I think struck me most, and most literally struck Moscow, was the use of drones to send these longer range drones up to 800 kilometers in range to go and attack Moscow itself to go and try and hit the Kremlin or to go and hit these affluent areas of Moscow. Now, of course, that is shaping the Russian public opinion of the war. Maybe they don't think it's going to go too well. I would never condone the bombing of civilian centers or or morale bombing. I don't think that works in any way, shape or form. But it did shape the conflict in such that the Russians started to have to move some of their air defence systems back towards Moscow. And that's a vital kind of cat and mouse game that's going on at the moment in the war, is who has the best air defence.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, again, it's, it's assets, and then it's what's the psychological message. So to the Russian population, that was one message. Also to decision makers in, in, in Russia, right? In, in Moscow, we have a number of different factions that are, jockeying and vying for control and basically it looks Putin look weak and anything that makes Putin look weak makes it harder for him to control all these factions and I'll, you know we're going to come on to probably the strategic game or what I think the strategic game for Ukraine is but uh, the jockeying different factions you know we've seen in the last week the ministry the Russian ministry of defense has tried to bring the Wagner group under its control and basically failed um anything that makes Putin look weak makes a coup more likely. And that's going to be the shortest way to finish the war, is some sort of you know, change of leadership in the Kremlin.
1: So is, is that it? Is that the Ukrainian objective, to try and put as much pressure on the Kremlin to bring about a coup?
2: Yeah. I think, basically, evicting every last Russian from Ukraine is going to be impossible. They, The leadership doesn't care enough about the Russian soldiers' lives, and They can dig in sufficiently that, you know, it's very hard to evict every last one of them. However, luckily, there's a shorter route to victory for the Ukrainians, which is to get the Russians to withdraw themselves. So then the question is, how do you achieve that? Well, Putin's never going to do it because he's totally bound up in this war. So then you need another leader. So what you need to do is make Putin appear like he's losing the war or he's weak or he's a poor commander. So the Kremlin attacks are like a small part of that. But much more effective at achieving that goal, and and really the whole military manoeuvres in Ukraine are about affecting the psychology of the people in Moscow, right? And so, if you can get some sort of battlefield spectacular, you know, maybe you surround Crimea or you get down to the Sea of Azov and cut the Russian forces in two, or you rout a significant ten thousand Russian troops, or you take mass prisoners, or whatever, you know, something spectacular that is undeniably. A Russian screw-up that or Russian weakness that the Ukrainians you know professionally take advantage of and orchestrate in you know in a professional competent swift manner something like that or two or three events like that spectacular on the battlefield are likely more than anything else to lead to and it's not obviously not certain but they contribute to this feeling of Putin's mismanaging the war. This is a disaster for Russia. Someone needs to take control. And obviously the deal is for that new person that they get. You withdraw your troops and we'll welcome Russia back into the West and the sanctions will go away and all that kind of stuff. Now, who knows? Who knows, frankly? And the problem with that theory is that we don't really have a good handle on who would take over.
1: And it feels like, sadly, it feels like a very, very long way away. So... How is the counteroffensive going? That's the long-term, broader strategic aim. On the ground, what advances have we seen in terms of Ukrainian forces? There's been some reports of some villages being liberated, but these are, are, are small at best with a population of perhaps a 1,000 here or there. These aren't the spectacular that you're talking about.
2: Okay, so look, we're a week in, right? So it's impossible to say with any degree of certainty. And I also think that measuring it in terms of, you know, numbers of settlements liberated is, is not necessarily the best metric because the Ukrainians are bypassing lots of settlements. Because what's the point in having a big fight over something? You can just bypass it, cut off the supply chains to it and then, you know, take it at your leisure. This stage of the conflict, the Ukrainians are absolutely trying to get through and cut Russian lines of logistics. Because if you can cut that, then the Russian forces will collapse. That whole collapse in Kherson in you know, towards the end of last year, absolutely came about because the Ukrainians had sealed them off from their own logistics supply, dropped all those bridges and made it impossible for heavy, heavy supplies to go over those bridges. And that meant that those forces were no longer able to sustain themselves and they had to withdraw. And it's a tried and tested method of warfare so how's it been going well there's basically three uh, you know in addition to all the things we spoke about there's still the billerud things going on with the freedom legion and there's still stuff up in you know there's all sorts of things going on uh, but they're just to keep russian troops in place and to stop the russians pulling those troops out and reinforcing down in the three kind of key areas and those are south of zaporizhia towards a town called tokmak which is a really key Russian logistics hub. It's a railway junction. There's Bakhmut in the east, which we've sort of heard about continually for the last six months. And then there's Vulodar, and sort of 20 kilometres west of Vulodar is quite a broad front there, which is sort of north of Mariupol. Now, both the Tokmak and the Vulodar axis obviously both lead to the Sea of Azov, right? And, and the advantage of getting to the Sea of Azov is you cut the Russian forces in two. If you can hold that bridgehead, You've got the Russian forces in Donetsk and Luhansk, and then you've got Crimea and the south, and they're separated. And if you drop the Kerch Bridge, then Crimea is completely isolated. So that you're then in a very strong position to. I mean, that's spectacular, right? Crimea under siege.
0: Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, From familiar names to lesser-known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic.
0: Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
1: That's a massive geographical vulnerability, isn't it? As that bridge has been as well. I mean, Putin built that in, in record time. One of the longest... He drove the first truck across he did. it. He did. and then it
2: <laughs> And then it lays blown up on a, a relatively regular basis. So they've got these three offensives. And remember we said earlier that what they're trying to do is continue some of that deception from the shaping operations into this offensive. And, and broadly what they're trying to do is... Bakhmut, the Russians have... They put absolutely everything into taking it. This is also about the factionalism inherent in the Russian forces. The Wagner group took it, and then they did a relief in place with the sort of standard Russian military. And the Wagner group were kind of more capable, more aggressive than the standard Russian military they've been placed with. So the Ukrainians have just started nibbling away at the flanks of that. They're leaving the city alone, but they're pushing around the flanks to try and encircle it, which has all sorts of lovely psychological effects for the Russians. It makes them think, God, we put all this effort in, and we're about to lose it. It heats up the rhetoric between Wagner and the MOD. It also has a great military effect. Then They might encircle it and trap all these Russian forces. So that's really useful. And what it does is it keeps 10, 20,000 Russian soldiers in that area. They can't pull out of that area because it's such an important psychological area. It actually has very little military significance.
1: That's what I was going to say, like in terms of his actual military worth, there isn't that much, but symbolically, it's become such a kind of
2: yeah, but why did Hitler order the thrust towards Stalingrad rather than towards Moscow, right? you know, because it had Stalin's name in it, so you know warfare' is not like geniuses making like impeccable decisions <laughs> it's It's the opposite, and then we've got these two thrusts in the south, and it's very interesting, basically, the plan is you know push on both of them. And just see where the Russians. I think I suspect what's happening is they're waiting for the Russians to deploy their reserve. Like I'm, assu- well, I'm assuming they've got a reserve, otherwise they're in even worse condition than we thought they were. But once you see them commit their reserve or significant portion of it, then obviously you just hit the other axis. And here the Ukrainians have got a bit of an advantage, which is that they are. If you think about how the Ukrainian forces and the Russian forces are arranged in Ukraine, the Ukrainians are on the what are called interior lines. So they're a kind of donut shape and the Russian forces are arranged around them on the outside of that circle. And what that means is that it's much easier for the Ukrainians to redeploy troops and assets and equipment and all the rest of it up and down the front line than it is for Russia. They have to do a longer journey, literally a longer journey. And they have to do it through territory that's got Ukrainian partisans on it, where the Ukrainian held Ukrainian territory is friendly and safe. So they're in this very strong position and they've got two options, really. They either strike down towards Mariupol on the, on the kind of Vulladar axis. That's fine. That's about 60 miles, about 100 kilometers. Or they have the kind of Tokmak axis, is a little bit longer, not much longer. And that would be, again, you don't need to take Tokmak. You can just surround it or bypass it. All you need to do is cut the railway lines in and out of it. Then you've either got the option of going down to Melitopol, which is another major hub, and cutting that. Or you could just go straight for the coast. And if you go straight for the coast... All of those Russian units in the south, in the south Kherson region, in Melitopol, suddenly are like, where are we getting our supplies from? So, yeah, I think they've got a couple of options. And um, we'll just have to see won't we over the next. It, it really depends on the, you know, the Russian pushback, what they decide to do, which they decide is the main axis. The Ukrainians may not even decide it, which is the main axis. They might have both of them as options.
1: There are a number of commentators out there, experts, defence intellectuals, Say what you will. Say what you want to call them. But they're saying that this advance is going too slowly... For Ukraine. The fact that they don't have enough air defence systems, that they have to move at this snail's pace in order to protect themselves under this, this bubble of air defence, because if they try and capitalise on any of their gains or any Russian slip-ups and they move out into the open and they'll be decimated by this increased number of Russian loitering munitions, kamikaze drones, things like the Lancet 3, which is a, a more advanced version of the Lancet 1. To what extent do you buy this analysis? Does Ukraine have to move at this snail's pace? Is this going to continue for many months in order for them to make these
2: gains that you've said? I think there's probably three things I'd say. The first is that all those people saying that are very welcome to strap on some body armour and uh, go and charge a Russian defensive position. Linked to that, right throughout this conflict, Ukraine has been very, very careful uh, with the lives of its soldiers, in very stark contrast to the Russians. And I think that is the the way that they are fighting this war because the soldiers are a limited resource and they have to keep the casualties down to as low a level as possible. I think the third thing I'd say, which is a little bit about the way these types of war are fought, is that often what you see is it seems that nothing happens for a while and it's very slow, and then suddenly you spot a seam or you spot a weakness in the enemy and then you can pour through that and then a week. You know, two weeks, three weeks happens in half a day, and I think that's the nature of. At the moment, we've got in some cases three or four layers deep Russian defensive lines. You're not going to charge through that, are you? And you could liken what they're doing to a reconnaissance in force. So you put, you know, you put a force forward, and then you use that to identify where the Russian positions are, call in high miles in those positions, destroy them, right, and then repeat. But that takes time. But it's a slow, methodical way of clearing your way through a three or four deep defensive belt. I would wait and see because, you know, at some point they'll spot something and they'll go for it and they'll pour right through.
1: And let's be honest, I think one thing that's forgotten about this conflict is that Ukraine is fighting a great power, a great power that has a vast amount of military resources. It does have, you know, at least some well-trained troops. It is a difficult fight that we're going against. And I think that in the West, at least, we've got used to to wars that we think we can win relatively quickly. We felt like we had left behind kind of wars like this uh, long into the past, these brutal, in some places, entrenched wars of attrition. After Afghanistan and Iraq, we moved towards this more remote warfare modus operandi, where we'd operate in environments where we had command of the air, and you wouldn't worry about this sustained air power threat from an adversary. This is a very different war than we're used to dealing with, and it's a very different war that the public are used to
2: dealing with i mean is russia a great power
1: Well wow, that's another that's another episode <laughs> you know, i guess I mean,
2: I mean i'll just segue into it very briefly if i may like you know there's three things that make a great power military strength strip away the nukes and Russia doesn't look like a competent military power.
1: But it does have nukes. So, I mean, that that is that, is a, that is a variable to keep in mind, as Putin keeps on reminding okay, us. Okay, that is another
2: podcast. But, you know, I do, again, I don't, you know, right from the start, I have not put much store in the fact, you know, that Russia is going to use nukes. I just don't, because basically they've been told that any nuke is the same rules during the Cold War. You use nukes, we've also got nukes. Like that's There's no quicker way for Putin to end his reign in the Kremlin than to use nuclear weapons. That is literally the quickest way for him to be ejected from power. So military, economic, and cultural are generally the three ways we define great powers. I don't see Russia scoring very well on any of them. No one's like banging on the door to go and live in Russia, are they? The economic, I mean, it's got a smaller GDP than, God knows, pick a small state like it's tiny and um and then the military power, as we see is is not that, that not that great. I think the difficulty comes from the fact that it's much easier to defend than attack and when you have militaries that have broadly comparable levels of technology, which is what we're seeing here, I mean the wars that we fought you know very, very quickly was like the u s versus the Taliban, which was of course the guys with the drones with the 24-hour all-weather I-Star are going to win, you know, tactically going to win that war. Although, no, they lost it strategically at the strategic levels. It doesn't matter how good their tactics were. And But when you have it, like in Ukraine, we have a situation where broadly the levels of technology are the same. And therefore, you just kind of, you revert back to these fairly cast-iron laws of war that, you know defending you know you need three times as many attackers as you do defenders in order to take a position minimum so that gives you an idea of how much more difficult it is to go on the offensive than it is to and to take positions that are defended or that you know someone's thought about how to defend them and all the rest of it and built a defensive position so i think what we're seeing in ukraine is kind of what we would expect if we thought about it and we you know the 20 years of interregnum, you know in iraq and afghanistan was a just a different type of type of warfare
1: it is interesting to think about the extent to which this this war signifies uh, an end of Russia's great power status. i would be a bit more hesitant in terms of the economy. It's still a pretty big economy buoyed by mm. massive natural resources that are purchased from all around the world. But mm. you're right, it is, mm-hmm. it is, it has faltered, it has stuttered on the battlefield. And, it, you know, this is meant to be a, a special operation that was meant to be over in weeks. And we're we're quickly entering into... Th- right? th- th- three days, right? Three, sorry. Days. Come on, days. Man, three, three days. Three days. <laughs> What's next then, Mike? What What are we going to see? You know, this is the most difficult question to ask. I
2: understand that. What, in the, in over the next? Over the, over the coming uh, weeks. U- yeah. So, pff, look, but they want to get stuff sorted out by uh, they being the Ukrainians by about October and November. Before the winter sets in. Yeah, they um, don't want to let it drag on much beyond that. And I would hope over the summer they're going to try and get to the Sea of Azov. Certainly, if they don't manage to do that, then that's pretty problematic. And once they've done that, they've probably got a time, a chance. to Then I guess they'll drop the Kerch Bridge if they can do that. And then, then we'll start to see the Russian logistics system really creaking, right? Like, how do they supply these troops? And at that point, we'll either start to see the Russians pull back from certain areas because they're just undefendable with the level of supplies that they've got, or, I don't know, it's, it's very unclear how Russia will respond to Crimea being put under siege. Like, I don't think the Ukrainians are going to go into it. Like, that's too difficult. But you can just put it under siege very easily and stop stuff getting in there, apart from food, food and water. And
1: so then the, the political screws start to tighten, pressure on Putin. And you'd hope that there might be some discussions about peace or a peace agreement. Or like you say, Putin
2: is brought down in some sort of Um, I don't know I mean that's they've got to do it before 24 I think I think most people are concerned about the US presidential race which so that's you know the election's November 24 but you know they go on for ages right so they'll be kicking it off in March or something and we've seen some of the characters that are running in that race they're not all supportive of Ukraine so I think Ukraine and some of the European allies are quite worried that if it goes on into next year and Ukraine becomes a political football in the US, then that might affect you know, America's policy towards the conflict. And obviously, if you know, America is the indispensable ally, if America decides to scale it down, then that, I would doubt that the Europeans be able to carry on that, that level of supplies on their own. And that's
1: why we've always got to keep that domestic politics in sight in mind and that domestic cycle in the mind. Well, well, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to give us this update on the counter-offensive and what has been going on so far. We'll definitely get you back on the Warfare Podcast as things progress, but tell us, where can people follow you online for these, these almost daily updates of what's going on, and where can we read more of your work?
2: Uh, well, you can follow me at Threshed Thought, all one word, uh, on Twitter, and I've just published a book, actually, called How to Fight a War, which is You know, some of the things we've been speaking about today, and it's literally a how-to guide with the reader in the mind of a commander-in-chief thinking about sending their troops into war, and it it tells you what you need to know.
1: Fascinating. I can't wait to read it. We'll put a link to your book in the show notes. Mike, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, James. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, On Instagram at James Rogers History and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes.
0: Planning for your next trip?